I can still engage with it as a work of fantasy. For me, it's like I would have ha- I would have been having more fun reading exactly. It you know, there's what I mean? a thrill, and you can have fun with it because it's not actually happening. Um, right. But yeah, yeah, that a little bit of that magic is taken away from it. Reading it right now, which is and, and honestly, I, I anybody who's lived through this time, you'll probably never get that back. So sorry to tell you, like you probably can't read this and not think of COVID, you know, ever again. Exactly. But there also might be something added, some weight gained by like That's the true. fact that like this is a, you know, true event at this point. Like there's there's some Somewhat, parallels yeah. <laughs> and, and so like there's there's some stuff that that's, you know, baked into it now. If you're a COVID survivor, you're thinking like, you know, holy shit, Stephen King was talking about the stuff in the seventies. to episode 167 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss the first third of Stephen King's 1978 novel, The Stand. Welcome everybody to season five of our podcast. Hello, James. I feel like we haven't talked much over the last few weeks, which has been a a weird change, but now I'm back to having these uh, weekly long conversations which I uh, I look forward to honestly, so I'm glad to be back doing this again. Yeah, I can't believe it's season five, and I'm I'm also equally excited to get back to our therapy sessions, <laughs> where we yeah. get to talk about our our you know it's it's just fun to engage with this kind of stuff on a daily basis. So yeah, love getting back to it. Some sense of normalcy is returning to the world, um, yeah. and I can't believe it's season five. And honestly, we're starting with like a Stephen King epic, which which harkens back to like the beginning of the podcast. So it's almost nostalgic. Yeah. yeah, the very first project we did was It, um, going on what, four plus years ago now, and uh, yeah, we're 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 coming back to his his uh his only longer novel. It's actually a a fun wow. fact that I was going to share with you is that this book is, um, according to the, what I saw, fourteen pages longer than It, making it his longest wow. novel. <laughs> slightly, and Just this was slightly. written before, right? This was written before. Yes, it, I this believe. was written before It. Yeah, nineteen seventy eight. Um, yeah, I actually didn't realize how early on in his career this was, which we'll get we'll get into that stuff later. Yeah, I, I, a couple things we got to talk about right off the bat. First off, we are recording this the day before the inauguration, with the plan to drop the episode the day after the inauguration. I hope that it goes great and that there's nothing crazy that happens and it's not weird and we're all happy. Um, I am worried that something will happen. Um, and this will all of a sudden seem like in poor taste or something. I don't know. Um, right. all we can do is hope that things go well and yeah, just, just be aware we are, we are literally recording this on the 19th. So whatever happens tomorrow, yeah. we don't know about it yet. And, and to, to address things in poor taste as well, we, we, it's not lost on us that the show is coming out in a time that's still, you know, being affected by COVID Yeah, and this is a show about, or this is a story about disease. It's a story about something very similar it's about you know a pandemic and uh i think that it's very important for us to like approach it from we want to be respectful of the fact that you know luke was telling me just before the episode we just crossed four hundred thousand deaths in america yeah 
Um, and so we don't want to in any way, you know, poke fun at anything that's actually happened in real life. We are we are approaching this fictional story. And of course, it's going to seem, you know, morbid at times and really uh, close to home. But we're going to we're going to do our best to kind of navigate that. And um, I, so far reading the book, it's been, you know, sort of a fun exercise for me. And you know, if, if that's not necessarily for you. Um, right now maybe check back later but yeah i'm sure there are some that couldn't read this right now and i think it's totally valid um i just want to echo what you said you know like my heart goes out to everybody who's been affected by this um and i know that there's like more contagious variants out there and like stuff's scary stuff's still scary we're in the middle of it um vaccines are starting to happen but there's not nearly enough of them and the rollout was incredibly slow and you know we're hoping things are going to change now with the new administration coming in but um, it's just, it's a tough time, but we covered like, I am legend, uh, you know, last year during, during COVID. And there is also something to be said for like looking at fiction that surrounds pandemics and kind of being able to compare it to what's going on. As long as I think you, you know, as long as we're trying to remain respectful, which I definitely want to do, definitely want to, uh, treat this topic with the gravity that it deserves while also maintaining that like, this is a fictional you know, situation that has been out since the seventies. Um, this is a landmark piece of post-apocalyptic fiction, um, you know, pandemic fiction, which is like in kind of its own genre. The stand is like at the top of so many lists. And we also want this to be sort of a reprieve from all that stuff going on. You know, like we want this to be something to sort of escape what's going on currently while also, you know, realizing that it's almost impossible uh, but with that, like, I, we want to have fun with it. It's the beginning of the season. It's one of his most well-known, beloved books, you know, and like Stephen King has been a fixture on this podcast. Now we've covered Pet Cemetery and The Shining and It and now this, right? Am I forgetting one? <laughs> and The Outsider. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I mean, so we've had a ton of Stephen King on the, on the podcast. He's a favorite. And if we're, you know, we're tackling one of his biggest, most well-known books. Um, we got to be excited about it. Right. And I am. Um, I wanted to, to, before we get into everything, because I'm going to talk about some history behind the book, and then we're going to move into, like, full-on spoilers for the part that we've read. Now, we, I don't know if I said it before, but, like, we've only read the first third of this novel, um, you know, basically going up to the end of what's called book one in the book itself, that it's divided into books. Um, and it, in many ways, this this big tome feels kind of like a trilogy. It just happens to all be in one book, um, in my opinion. So we're covering book one here, which is, you know, up to a certain point, and we will have full spoilers up to that point once we get started. But before all of that, just in case there's anyone checking out this episode here at the top, and they're curious, like, should I read The Stand? You know, what does somebody think of it who has maybe only read a few Stephen King novels Um, which I think is both of us here. Um, I have read this one before, though, so I'm really leaning on you. I'm really curious to know what you are thinking of this book so far, James. I've always wanted to read this book. And I like I I mentioned, I can't remember if it was on a bonus episode or something, but this is a massive book that was always on my dad's bookshelf. And I kept Mm. I would always look at it. And and to be honest with you, I for the longest time didn't know that it was like a disease like plague uh, pandemic novel. Mm -hmm. I had no idea, especially because like the, the cover that he had was like, this weird like battle going on oh it's the two guys the two guys are doing battle yeah 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 so i was like what the fuck is this book about um but before the pandemic before any of this stuff was was very close to home i still would have loved this but there's a weird fascination with like having gone through a pandemic through this like 
the world has dealt with this for the last year. Um, you know, what what did they get right? Yeah. What did Stephen King get I mean, right? It's, it's it's pretty easy to fact check them on some of this stuff, you know, <laughs> right? Like, like we're pretty well versed in like pandemic. What what has gone on? And, you know, like what was the response of our go- actual government versus like the fictionalized version yeah. of our government? It was all just theory. Like he didn't know how it was going to go. And obviously it's a very different disease that he's dealing with here. But I think it is striking that there's no real attempt to contain it um, in the book. It happens way too fast. Um, it seems to go down in the course of a few weeks and like everybody's dead, um, which like that's not really a spoiler. That's kind of the premise of the book. Um, so, you know, that's that's the setup. Um, it's also clearly has like a higher kill rate and oh, higher extremely high. It's like ninety nine point four or something like. Right. Very, it's very like high. the ultimate version of like the 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 worst apocalyptic event of yeah. a disease could possibly be yeah so it's different than like what's actually been happening in the world obviously yeah. so it, it is interesting like I, we won't get into all those nitty-gritties but definitely i was thinking about all the like oh how this lines up to what we know about like the actual pandemic we're living in right now which is highly contagious it's just like the, the death rate isn't nearly as absolute as it is here in the stand which like knock on yeah. wood we're lucky Right. I mean, in, in I mean, in this story, the, the you can't even like if there's a cut in your in your like hazmat suit, it's still getting you that kind of thing. Like it's that sort of contagion. Yeah. Um, but to talk about it from like a Stephen King fan, because I feel like at this point we were like bona fide Stephen King fans. I was already a sort of Stephen King fan. Um, I'd read some of his stuff. And then and then like this podcast is just sort of like mm-hmm. been a, a an excuse for us to read a lot of his stuff. And and um. I've I've said before that he has a sort of pattern that he likes to do, but it's so effective, and the way that he writes is so unique to himself that I think it's always compelling. And, what, it, and in this case, it. What do you mean by is. the pattern? I'm curious. So there's always an element of like good versus evil in his like supernatural oeuvre, like mm-hmm. like worlds that he creates, and it's like um, d- you know, characters dealing with the darker elements of themselves, being our heroes. Um, I, I would say like. There's no set like story that's going to play out in that way, but the themes are always there, I yeah. would say. And so I can like going into this novel, there are details that pop up that I'm like, remember the turtle from it? Or I'll be like, remember, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like remembering you, you, you're, things. You're, you're catching on to larger things going on in his macroverse stuff. Yeah. You kind of know going into his stories, at, or at least I do at this point, that like there's more if there's a dream sequence or a delusional, mm-hmm. like some sort of like... um you know somebody's like being ravaged by this virus and they're like delirious that that like some of those things are probably not just metaphorical they're yeah. like almost like supposed to be happening and stuff so and i love that stuff about his story yeah and i remember the first time i read this i was i didn't know that it had that supernatural element to it and even knowing that it does it, it is always kind of surprising when you start getting a little of it because you've you get so much of just like a, a story about people dying from this disease and it seems very rooted in science. And then yep. all of a sudden you have, you know, some magic happen, <laughs> um, which right. we'll get into once we get into the full spoilers, I guess. But um, I just wanted, yeah. So I wanted to kind of echo what you're saying. I agree. He's got, I think you're talking about like inner conflict within each character. He, he kept, he, he's a master in my opinion, especially within the horror genre um, but really within all genres, of, of creating character. I think he's amazing at it. And he creates flawed characters that are at war with themselves. And it's always really interesting to to follow a character like that as they enter into a conflict where maybe they are going up against some greater evil, right? Um, and that really stands out from 
something like Lord of the Rings, where you have a lot of like paragons of, of you know, valor who don't have that inner conflict like we're seeing. Mm-hmm. And like each one of these characters are deeply flawed and they're like overcoming things. And, you know, some of them like you don't even know if you like. And I don't know. It's just like a lot of his characters are just so rich. Um, and then he couples that with just amazing, um, amazing ear and eye for detail that continues to astound me whenever I read Stephen King. I am blown away by how effortlessly he creates a world that feels like our own, but also he's able to inject that sense of like fantasy or magic in there. So it, it feels very familiar, like, ooh, this is our world yet with a twist. And he does it through detail. And he's just got such a great, he, it's like highly specific details about this you know what what he's the setting he's in the characters what they're wearing what they're doing what they're interacting with and um i don't know that just all creates this tapestry that immediately draws me in and i am a fan of it now i'm not to say like he doesn't have he has detractors and i know um people are not all fans of his and and i and i can see it and there's also like there are reasons we'll get into within the course of this story of like things that i don't necessarily agree with um choices that i don't necessarily agree with but I respect them and I respect what he was able to accomplish. And I also recognize it was written in a completely different time than today. Um, so mm-hmm. all these caveats aside, like, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm enjoying it. I'm, it's my second time through and I'm, it's like revisiting an old friend for me because I, it's a lot of stuff that I'd forgotten because I, I really struggled to hold on a lot of details from, from books I read 10 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, coming back to it, has just been a lot of fun for me. So I would recommend it to, for, for most everyone who knows that they like Stephen King, um, or even if you're just curious about Stephen King, with the caveat of again, it is a plague book about people dying in mass. So you got to be ready for that and know that's what you're getting into before you sit down with it. Stephen King is the first thing I want to talk about because you know he's seen as like this this beacon of horror, and I love that his approach to horror isn't necessarily what people think of as like traditional horror because like he like we you kind of touched on it a little bit, but like. The thing that's horrifying about this book for 95% of the time is people dying gruesome deaths that are like that, you know, people having to watch their family members die and like the things that truly terrify people. Um, And then he also blends it with this like um, supernatural elements and things. But but sometimes I think when people in their mind think of horror, they'll think creatures, monsters things that go bump in the night and things that are going to chase you in the woods. And there's a little bit of that in King's story, but most of the horror comes from like his suspense. And like, I'm thinking of specifically a scene that we'll probably talk about that takes place in a tunnel in a dark tunnel. Yeah. Um, that's like all suspense. And like, it's like, maybe there's something supernatural, but a lot of it is just like purely him terrifying you in this scenario you don't need the supernatural to terrify people and king king can do it um and a lot of it's just like with the imagination of the character um and and he gets Mm -hmm. very close into these povs even while maintaining a certain omniscience which is um a very like a hallmark of the way he writes um but i think we spent enough time now on general general thoughts um sounds like we would recommend this um so let's move into some background about the book uh, and then we'll that we'll move into our actual like deep dive into what happens. So I'm sure yours had the opening preface like mine, um, where it talks about how we're reading the uncut, unrevised, whatever version <laughs> of this book. Mm-hmm. Um, which I I went and watched a video of him talking about this. It was recorded around the time that this revised version came out, um, and he was saying that the original they cut a 
520 pages from the original manuscript. And he said um, many of them um, were good cuts that he ended up keeping, but a lot of it was stuff he did not want to cut. And it was only cut for what he calls accounting reasons, um, meaning that the publisher did not want to make a book that was too expensive to produce for the price point they wanted to sell it at. So because of that reason, they made him cut out all those pages. Um, and he didn't like that. So he, you know, I think as he grew in his power as a, as a famous author, he was like, well, I'm going to re-release it with what I want in there. Um, and, he, and he put a lot back in. And that's a big point to, to look at, too, because like you think of King as like this, like he's like the ultimate publisher's dream. And yet when he was younger, in his younger, earlier, in his writing career days, he had to, you know, make concessions like this and be yeah. like, okay, well, if I want this to get published, I'm going to have to cut out a lot of my yeah. baby here. Because he was a best-selling author at the time. He had published Carrie, which was a success. Um, it was gonna. It was adapted a couple years later, I believe, into into a, a, a film that was a big success. Um, he had written Salem's Lot, and he had written The Shining already, and he had written a book called Rage under the pseudonym Richard Bachman. Which he one of the reasons he started writing under that pseudonym was to try and see if his stardom was just like random happenstance and he just got lucky or if he could replicate it as an unknown so he that's why he invented the richard bachman uh, pseudonym for and other reasons he wanted to write in different genres that he felt like he might not be able to with his like horror brand um but then he would publish the stand um which he actually started writing uh several years before um so it is a very early novel for him. Now, those are some some big time books, but those are like just coming out around the time he's still writing this book and negotiating. So he was in the process of building up his brand. It sounds like at this time um, as a young up and comer. And and honestly, it's amazing to me that he launches right into this book, right? Like this massive epic. And one of yeah. the things I wanted to say was uh, he talked about how one of the influences for this book was J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Hmm. He wanted to try and write an epic, but set in America and mm -hmm. the modern in the modern day. And he coupled that with some influences. Um, he also cited a book called Earth Abides, written in 1949 by George R. Stewart as another influence. And it, it, apparently it was about human survivors of a plague. So he'd read this mm -hmm. plague book and he wanted to write this epic. Um, and you know, this is what comes out of it when he, when he, he combines multiple ideas. Um, and, and basically he has, I don't know if this is a spoiler cause I don't know how like one-to-one -one it is, but he basically considers Stuart Redman, his Frodo and, uh, Randall flag wow. obviously is his dark Lord. So I can see that, you know, what's crazy is like, he, there were, there were Lord of the Rings, like a pretty long segment of Lord of the Rings references. Yeah, there was a like few. He, yeah. He, I was, I was like, yeah. I was writing them down. I was going, Ooh, yeah. And, and then I was, this was before I read this and I was like, I wonder if he's doing this for, on purpose. Um, Probably. And right. He, I think he was, I think he captures that sort of feel where multiple different point of view characters. And this is just from what I'm pulling out of the book so far. I don't even know how it goes on to end, but it, these people are clearly important and are going to cross paths. There's no doubt about some of them, at least, whether they whether they all do or not. And that idea is kind of seen with like um, the trio in in Lord of the Rings of, you know, Legolas, Gimli and Aragorn. And then and then they're sort of like intersecting with Frodo and Sam now and again. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm just like that. that I mean, I think it's ca he captures that sort of vibe and it does feel very large in scale. The story is massive. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot of characters and those those chapters that are like specifically about 
they're like short stories that are about the goings on of the world besides our main characters. Like we see like newsrooms and, and like these government workers who are like covering things up and that kind of thing. Yeah, I love that stuff, man. And and uh, I did want to, as we were sort of heaping praise on him earlier, that was another thing I wanted to to heap some more on is that um, the pace of this book feels really compelling, especially in this, this early section here. Um, and I love the way it hops around between revisiting clearly who are our core main characters and then giving us these really interesting little side stories that fill in the story of the world, right, and, and, and of America, you know, dying and, you know, in its death throes. And um, I think it also is indicative of a time in which, uh, you know, government skepticism was incredibly high about cover-ups. Like, you can tell there was a certain sort of political atmosphere at the time he was writing this um, mm -hmm. and, and distrust. And um, I'm not to say that, you know, this wouldn't happen, but you're seeing a very competent government quickly and deadly and with deadly force covering things up. Um, whereas, I don't know, I feel like modern day you might see more incompetence because that maybe is more the, you know, political climate we have been living in. So it, it, I think it is indicative of the time, um, I, but I'm no expert to say for sure. But that is just my suspicion. He lived in um, he lived to, in Boulder, Colorado while he was writing this. Um, so I, you, that becomes more apparent later why that's interesting i guess <laughs> yeah while we're talking about it there's there boulder colorado is a, a kind of a large um thing that people have talked about there's like um vegas has been talked about mm -hmm. atlanta has been talked about um maine has been talked about it's of course texas new york texas yeah um so like it's really all over the country we're yeah. getting we're getting points of view from yeah for sure um and, and i think that he's trying to tell the story of of an america that is that is you know that's the setting for this epic you know it's yeah. not just Maine as you know many of his other books might right. be um okay so although you can see how much love Maine gets in, even in this of book course. he's like he's the beautiful shout out to area of Maine he's always shouting out how amazing Maine is and it, uh, you know I haven't been there but I assume it's great I have been there and it is pretty great uh you know I didn't live there or anything but we, we used to go there um in the summertime and 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 uh my family has a house up there my my grandparents so I am pretty familiar with Maine and it it does feel like you're in a Stephen King novel sometimes when you're there I will shout <laughs> you know like it, it has that feel to it he really captures it um to where the two have blended together in my mind now that's cool Okay, so I thought we would move into into talking about each character um and and what's gone on with them for this project, by the way, which I don't think we've quite said yet, our plan is to cover the book, uh, book one this episode, book two next episode, which is the middle chunk of the book, and then we're going to watch the first five episodes of the CBS series, take a break from the book for a week, to cover that, then we're going to come back, finish the book, and then the following week, finish the series, and then we'll be comparing the two at that point. Um, you know, and, and I'm hoping that taking a break and watching five episodes isn't, isn't going to like throw off immersion in the book. Cause I'm sure it's going to be pretty different, but I feel like we've had, we're, we've got a pretty good track record of being able to keep the things separate in our minds. Yeah. So I think that's a cool way to do it where we can kind of preserve the ending as long as possible. Um, and then, and then really compare it. So that's our plan. It's gonna be a five week massive coverage for us. So we hope you, you join us all, you know, for the entire thing. If you're a fan of this, that's what we do. That's a little bit different than other podcasts. We do this like really deep kind of in-depth coverage. Um, whereas others might give you like a, just a quick one off 30 minute episode or something where they compare both. So, um, that's what we're doing. 
We have some exciting changes. I'm sure you noticed the beginning of this episode was a little bit different. We're we're cha- we're, we're ever changing. We're trying to improve at all times. So um, to that end, we uh, have really exciting changes going on over at Patreon. We got new art created by the person who created our original logo, Natalie Metzger. Right. Um, she's great. And uh, it's going to be Patreon exclusive art that will be on new merchandise. So you can get a mug t-shirts it's it's very exciting i can't wait to wear it um i'm i'm excited for you guys to see it so yeah. check that out if you're interested yeah and also we are moving our uh, uh how we're determining future episodes um we're going to have patron voting episodes for our two dollars and up tier um we can touch more on this at the end i don't want to i don't want to you know overstay our welcome with it for some people don't care about patreon and that's fine you know, but for those who do, yeah. um, we're we're pushing some new cool stuff over there. We got you know the ability to vote on polls. We got all kinds of bonus content, so check that out. Um, lots of changes that should be uh, up and ready to look at as soon as this episode comes out. Okay, so but before we get into what uh, is going to be the plot proper, there's a quote in the preface where Stephen King talks about adaptations, and I just wanted to read that quote because I felt like this would be a fun thing for us to talk about, considering we are an adaptation podcast. Okay, so he says. But in the end, I think it is perhaps best for, and then he lists all the characters, (laughs) to belong to the reader who will visualize them through the lens of imagination in a vivid and constantly changing way no camera can duplicate. Movies are, after all, are only an illusion of motion comprised of thousands of still photographs. The imagination, however, moves with its own title flow. Films, even the best of them, freeze fiction. Anyone who has ever seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and then reads Ken Kesey's novel will find it hard or impossible not to see Jack Nicholson's face on Randall Patrick McMurphy. That is not necessarily bad, but it is limiting. The glory of a good tale is that it is limitless and fluid. A good tale belongs to each reader in its own particular way. So I thought that was a cool little bit about adaptation and it mentions a project that we've covered <laughs> one flew over the yeah. cuckoo's nest. So I just wanted to run that by you. Like what was your take? Cause you're, you're typically more the film forward guy on this podcast. Right, right. It seems like he's a little bit, he's not dismissive right. of it, but he's, he's sort of given a lot of the power and magic back to the source. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's weird because it's almost like he writes books or something yeah. and he's biased <laughs> so towards like he's that. Um, but I mean, of course I, there are pros and cons to the mediums. We've talked about it. At, at length on this podcast um I, that's always something in with with novels that that's amazing because you get to process it at your own pace as quickly as or, or as in depth as you would like um and you know you, you there is so much more of your own imagination that you bring to it and in that way you're engaging with an author who's sort of like letting you have this material that they have they have made and then saying like you know make this world what you will of it whereas like i think in film you're having to do a lot more of the legwork in terms of saying like, this is the concrete, this is how this scene plays out, this is how this looks. And of course there are things, the pros of, of film is that, um, you know, there are times when you can you can change someone's mood based on the pacing of a, of a scene and how things play out and how maybe they, they feel like they can't keep up with what's going on because you want them to feel anxious or want them to feel a certain way. So there, are, there there's a lot built into, I think with, with film is very emotional. It's an emotional mm. medium where it's like it makes you feel things. It makes you feel sad. That's the. It's a vehicle to make you feel sad. It's, got it's music. a vehicle to make you feel happy. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So so in that way they're just they're very different. And of course I like what he wrote about novels. Yeah, it's cool. And and honestly, I, I didn't take it as much as him setting them at odds because I mean he's had a lot of adaptations done of his work and he knew he was gonna have more. And he was even talking about this being adapted. Um, but I think he's making a case for why we call this the ink to film podcast and not the, you know, film to ink or film and then go read the ink. Um, because we <laughs> like to start with the book. Now, sometimes like in this case, I've already read it. Um, so it's, it's a little different, I guess, although I haven't seen any adaptations for it. So I, and that way it still is book first. Um, and I do prefer that because there's something to be said for that. It, it, uh, once you see an adaptation, certain ideas sort of calcify around what you've seen. And when you go read that book, you bring it. You know what I mean? You're going to bring it to bear. And um, I think Game of Thrones is an example I'd throw out there of like one that I read the book first. And I just don't think anybody who watched the show and came back to the books is going to have the same experience because it's going to they're going to bring all those actors. They're going to bring all those sets to the book and they're going to imagine it through that lens. Um, it's just unavoidable, mm-hmm. right? Because you, you sort of imprint on it. Um, and I, I think it's a good point. Um, and, and I think The Stand is such an immense novel with so much going on, so many side characters who are so rich. Um, and I just, I, I don't know how good the CBS adaptation is or isn't, um, but I know that there are going to be a lot of things that are going to be left out and there's going to be a lot of stuff that we bring to the book ourselves and our own imagination that is just not going to be there. And um, I think he's speaking to that, right? Like no adaptation mm-hmm. can ever truly uh, capture. And that's why um, we've talked about how being faithful is not always like the sign of the best adaptation. Um, that's just one facet of many that can make for a good adaptation. While reading this, I couldn't help but, but feel sorry for anyone who had to try to adapt it. Yeah. Um, because it's so massive and there's so much going on and so much subtext being laid and you know, you need mo- many, many seasons. I hope there. I, I mean, I don't know how. I really haven't looked that much into the the CBS show so far, but this feels like multiple seasons of a of a show to me. It just feels like that if you wanted to try to really, really dive into it, um, and and not lose too many details, you you're gonna have to stretch it out for over multiple seasons. But, um, you know, I I that's not to say there can't be a great version that's sort of condensed. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what they were able to yeah. come up with. Well, I mean, originally I think it was like a three or four episode miniseries is the, the first adaptation, which we'll probably end up covering on a bonus episode. Um, yeah. So that's probably even more condensed because I think uh, there's like 10 episodes in the CBS. I think it is a limited series, though. So I think it is going to conclude uh, after one season. I, I, I'm not 100% sure on that, but that's my suspicion. Um, so... I figured the way to do this best is to kind of summarize and go through each character. Cause I would actually like to get your take on each character. I think for such a big book, it's nice to sort of focus in. And for now, at least like a lot of these stories are very separate. So it's kind of interesting I think to zero in on each of them. So if you're ready, let's start with Stuart Redman. So uh, Stuart yep. Redman is a quiet, intelligent widower from Arnett, Texas. Redman is at his friend's gas station on the night Campion arrives. Redman is the first man to be discovered with an immunity to the superflu and is taken by government authorities first to the Atlanta Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, then to the fictitious Stovington, Vermont, Plague Center. Redman escapes from Stovington facility after a government employee attempts to execute him. The implication is that the character, quote, knows too much, and he kills the would-be assassin in self-defense. After wandering through New England for several days, Redman meets and befriends Glenn Bateman, and shortly after, Fran Goldsmith and Harold Lauder. So let's talk about Stuart Redman. 
I'm bummed that Kojak wasn't in the synopsis there for, for his story <laughs> because it's great. not just Glenn Bateman. <laughs> yeah. It's also Kojak. Um, but then but then also I think I think we should do some setting up a little bit here. Um, the story begins with a point of view that we sort of lose and Campion. you know, we're in full spoilers now. So we're we're gonna dive into that a little bit. Yeah. Story begins this this character named Campion is a soldier who uh, you know, wakes is waking up his wife and kid and uh is like we got to get out of here yeah they jump in the car and they drive away they, he's like he's slipped through some security like auto shutdown features and he feels super lucky because he was able to to get out before he got locked in and he's like we gotta get the fuck out of here before they before they don't let us leave and it's such a human like like you're like you totally get why he feels this way yet i feel like the, the there's a great tension of the fact that you know well, this is the mm-hmm. th- this is the guy that ends up killing everybody. Patient Zero, yeah, he's yeah. The, he's the the contagious. Although the I mean, person who technically it was the government that ended up killing everybody, but you know what I mean. Like if he hadn't escaped, right. it wouldn't have gotten free. Well, it's and it's like nobody you know that like almost no one in the world is going to be noble enough to think, oh, I'm I'm definitely I've gotten this disease and I don't want to prevent a worldwide global pandemic. You're, you're going to be like. I got to get out of here and, and yeah. like, well, and he doesn't you know, know he has it self-preservation, right? Self-preservation is always people's sort of go-to. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes sense. Yeah. For the character. Anyway, that character, their car rolls into this gas station, slamming into the, the pumps. And luckily it doesn't explode because they shut off the pumps in time. But this is where we meet. Stuart is the one who recognizes that it needs to be shot off in time. Otherwise it might've exploded. Right. Yeah. So Stuart and, and company are all there as this car rolls in and, you know that's first contact with with anyone besides his family and they're all they're all dead in the car besides i guess campion campion's alive for a, for a minute yeah and it's gruesome you know they, they this whole like uh what do they call it like tire neck or something where like the neck swells um the way it's described um it's also very much like the flu a lot of flu symptoms um which is pretty real um and people not you know people not being able to breathe which is you know quite scary right now terrifying i mean horrifying stuff and that was something i was gonna say like i reading this i like made a comment to you we normally don't say anything to each other about the stuff that we're reading before we record the podcast because we want it to be very fresh but i was like we we were talking the other day and i was like it's freaking me the fuck out (laughs) like it's making me it's making me not want to come in contact with people even more than i already am Mm -hmm. and i've been extremely careful you know like and now i'm like I don't even want to like, you know, it's freaking me the hell out. Also, at times I felt like my throat started hurting while reading this. You know what I mean? I was getting physical responses to like reading about this kind of stuff. I felt like I was like, am I getting a tickle in my throat? Am I getting sick now? Mm. Um, Which was purely in my head. Yeah. Um, So it is interesting to note that like when I read this 10 years ago, this was all a flight of fancy, you know, it was like reading right. about, you know, you know, an asteroid hitting the earth and killing everybody or something. It was like, it could happen. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's just real enough, but it's not too real. And there are times where it feels too real reading this now. And I, I don't know that it necessarily makes the book worse, but I do think it, it, potentially negatively affects your ability to engage with it as like a work of fantasy. Like it's, it's so like we've, we've seen so much real shit go down that it's hard Mm -hmm. for me to engage it truly as a work of fantasy. I can still engage with it as a work of fantasy for me. It's like, I would have, I would have been having more fun reading. Exactly. You know, there's a thrill and you can have fun with it because it's not actually happening. 
Um, right. But yeah, yeah, that a little bit of that magic is taken away from it. Reading it right now, which is and, and honestly, I, I anybody who's lived through this time, you'll probably never get that back. So sorry to tell you, like you probably can't read this and not think of COVID, you know, ever again. Exactly. But there also might be something added, some weight gained by like That's the true. fact that like this is a, you know, true event at this point. Like there's there's some Somewhat, parallels. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so like there's there's some stuff that that's, you know, baked into it. Now, if you're a covid survivor, you're thinking like, you know, holy shit, Stephen King was talking about this stuff in the 70s. And, you know, obviously Fauci had been talking about it for a long time yeah, as well. Yeah. Like it was on its way. People were talking about it. Yeah. OK, so Stuart Redman. What do you think of this guy? Yes. He's he's the one of the quietest men in all of Arnett, Texas. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, what, how does he strike you? He seems, you know, uh, and not a, and not in a cynical way. He seems like a like standard uh, protagonist, like strong, silent, um, capable um, main main ish character. I would yeah. say he's kind of an everyman, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. But he's 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 clever. You know, he's like he's got that like he's likable, um, he, likable he's from the sure. he's kind of from the country, so people underestimate him. But clearly, he's mm-hmm. like smarter than a lot of people assume he is. So mm-hmm. I, there's always something kind of compelling about a character like that, you know. And and I like that here. Like yeah, he's very he is very likable. Um, he seems for the most part there there, I think for the most part he seems you know like a like a compelling character. And he's gone through some crazy shit. Yeah. And he's our first he's our first view at somebody. And this was something that I kind of saw coming. And I, you know, I don't I don't know if this is me seeing enough Stephen King novels or me sort of like understanding like what would be the most interesting story elements. But like, of course, there were going to be people who are immune. And I started to think like, okay, so so clearly he was the first. I started to get hints of him being immune. And then they basically out and out came and said, like, you're you're immune. Mm -hmm. Like something's going on here. And then, um, of course, like we can imply that like a lot of these other characters that we're reading about are also immune. And right. I think it's basically for most of them are at this point. That, yeah. That yeah. Still well, about. I mean, you don't necessarily know it right away, but yeah, a lot of our main characters that we meet end up being the ones who are immune. Um, and that makes sense, you know, cause they're going to be around longer. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, um, it's not going to be people just like legitimately quarantined yeah. in a house somewhere. Although like, you do, to... you do sometimes get chapters like that and you don't necessarily know this isn't going to be a main character and then they die at the end of it. And you're like, well, I guess he wasn't. <laughs> exactly. That has been something fun, um, fun in like a morbid way, but fun for, uh, story reasons. Like as I'm reading, I'm like, Oh, new, new character, new point of view character. And there's so, like I said, there's so many characters we keep getting introduced to people and some of them are likable. Some of them are unlikable. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about it, but when we get to Nick Andros, I was like, okay, we got a couple of new characters here that are like in a group already. Um, that's not the case. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, cause that's the other thing you, you meet these people and you're like, who else around them? Like I, I, I'm betting this person is immune Are any of right. the others they're with immune typically, you know? Um, and, and it ends up being no for the most vast majority of the case. Like most of our characters, everyone that they know dies, I think across the board. I mean, fairly pretty much, which is like, you know, what's the worst thing you can put any character through is like losing everybody they care about. And so all these characters have gone through like the full ringer, like they're, they've gone through everything. And, uh, something I can't help but think about reading the story also is like some of the walking dead, like reading the comic and and watching all of the show. No, I mean, and I can't, Oh, that's another fact I got to share. Um, but (laughs) the, uh, the reach of this novel is, is, you know, immense. So many people, react to it and you can't i don't think you can have a walking dead you know what i mean and without the stand and you know i i yeah. can't speak for you know the creators but like it is so influential and so many things that came later um 
And then one of the things I read that I thought was a lot of fun, there's a passage that says, Then Devon's asked, looking mildly surprised and exasperated at Lloyd's continuing stupidity, Why then you go on to death row at the state prison and just enjoy all that good food until it's time to ride the lightning. It won't be long. So, yeah. a young Kirk Hammett, while after Kill 'Em All had been released, but before their second studio album was to be released, read The Stand, saw this line, and decided to name their second studio and Metallica's second studio album after it. Um, just, you know, was so compelled by it. I had the thought. I was like, Ride the Lightning, I was like, I wonder what came first. And I was like, you know, I thought it might have been interesting. I mean, I and I don't know if there's any validity to this. I don't know if it was the first, probably wasn't the first time it was used. Actually, you know, it definitely wasn't the first time it was used. No, but, I'm, um, you, I'm it, sure it no, no, I'm sorry. I, I'm, not, I'm talking about something different, not Ride the Lightning. Okay. Um, it definitely wasn't the first time it was used, but I was, you know, I was getting Walking Dead vibes, CDC, Atlanta, mm -hmm. like some stuff like that was brought up. And of course, like um, just the disease in general. Uh, and then they they refer to some a few times. They say the Walking Dead. And I was yeah. like, I wonder if Kirkman was like read this and was like influenced to call his, you know, comics. Yeah. But what about Romero's? When did Romero stuff come out? Probably before this, right? Before this, yeah. yeah, which I I don't know that it was necessarily like it's all caught up. It's all caught up. It's all part of that same post-apocalyptic genre, right? And he's definitely t toying with the idea of the zombie zombie narrative, you know. Exactly. Especially, in, and we'll get yeah. to the Larry Underwood part in the tunnel. But yeah, I mean Romero. That's what I mean. Like I know it wasn't the first time The Walking Dead had been said, but you know, mm -hmm. maybe with the, the idea of like um a disease like like uh pandemic something like that yeah and it's a massive book that tons of people read so you never know where the influences go like i just said you know metallica's second studio album is named off of a, a phrase that he, he got from here now i don't know that awesome. stephen king came up with the phrase ride the lightning or if he had heard that somewhere and put it in his book because stephen king is really good at doing that like hearing little like turns of phrase that are very very real and like true to a time and in a, in a region of the country and he'll take them and he'll put them in his books. And I think that might be what this is, like something that people really say. I've always reacted. That's such a cool. And I know like it's kind of morbid because it, it is talking about like people being chair, killed yeah. in the electric chair. But like Ride the Lightning is a, is an awesome name for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he heard, heard that was like our metal album has got to be named. that. Um, yeah. Which I, I don't know. I think that's fun um, anyway. But yeah, I mean, let's get back to the characters before we go down any more uh, uh, side roads here. Um, next up, we have Franny Goldsmith, who is really our, our only main female character, we should say. Um, this book is not his most progressive in that sense. Like, it's a lot of white dudes. Um, I don't even think we have, like, a main character as a person of color here, um, which I, I think later on he did better jobs uh, with this. Um, and we'll get into there's some other there's some other problematic stuff that goes in here. But, like, in, in a lot of ways, this book just... Um, it feels very of a time, I guess, to kind of hand wave it, which I don't know if I should, but you know what I mean? Like, uh, we've seen, we've seen Stephen King do better and attempt to do better in this area later on. Also some sexism. Um, he's not terrible about it, but objectifying he, women. he definitely has objectifying writing in here. Um, which was kind of the flavor of the time, you know, so maybe he was kind of like, not, I mean, you're coming off of the it. 60s. You're coming off the 60s, like free love, a lot of sex positive stuff yeah. to an extent. And then there's also, but then there's also what comes of that is like objectification yeah. where people, and there's like, you know, there's a rape is talked about a decent amount yep. in this story, which is also, you know, kind of taboo, which, yeah. you know, does he, it's, I guess the question could be asked, like, does he do it well? 
who I'm not to, the person to say. So yeah, so. it's going to come down to every reader, I think, um, and, and yeah. where that strikes you. Um, obviously, he's got a legion of women who love his books. And you know what right. I mean? I, do they love him in spite of this stuff? Do they not care about it? Do, mm-hmm. Or do they think he actually does a good job? And, and you know, in some ways, I think Franny's a good character. Um, yeah, while we're here, I, I feel like I should mention you asked, you said like uh, any people of color, like like main ish characters. We were get we were shown a character that's not necessarily a main character, but we it's falling into the trope that that Stephen King is known for, which is um, magical black people magical negro yeah. i think is the term for like the the, t- the trope itself absolutely um, and you've identified that with uh with mother abigail i assume yes like right away yes she is one of the most iconic uh versions of this trope um and he you know it's caught a lot of flack for it rightfully so over the years um and yeah we're going to be getting into a lot of that with mother abigail um yeah, I mean it's 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 an unfortunate thing, and I'm sure we'll revisit it more because we haven't gotten a lot of her. It's just been like a, a couple of hints of some dreams, right? And then like uh, I think Nick meets her at one point, right? Yeah, yeah, in a dream. Um, but we'll get we'll get to that first. Let's focus in on Franny. So Franny is a college student from Agunquet, Maine. Goldsmith, often called Franny, is pregnant at the start of the book, a topic which resulted in a painful standoff with her mother and the end of her relationship with her baby's father, Jesse Ryder. The superflu wipes out Goldsmith's community, and she and Lauder, being the only local survivors, after a parking lot attendant, Gus Dinsmore, dies on June 30th. It is also believed that Jesse is, is dead. After burying her elderly father in his garden, Goldsmith decides on joining Lauder, and they both leave the vacant town. On Harold's suggestion, the two make their way to Stovington facility of the CDC with the hope of finding someone in position of authority. But before they reach their destination, they meet Redman. Okay, so let's back up and talk about Franny. She's pregnant at the start of this book, which immediately creates a lot of tension. And one of the things I loved mm-hmm. about her story and really all of these characters is they are immediately interesting and dealing with their own life struggles that I felt like engaged with. I was really engaged yeah. with her, like deciding what to do with this child. Like she could recognize when she gets pregnant. I don't actually love this Jesse guy. And, you know, then her, like having to tell her parents is like a harrowing scene um and the whole thing with the mother and the um the parlor and how she like won't let her in the parlor and like there's all this baggage around it and it's like this place that's like uh it's like this shrine and it's it's like holy ground and she's coming there to like you know disclose this thing that she immediately gets attacked over and i was just like man this is such a well-written section and it's all set on this backdrop of a world that we know is very soon not going to exist anymore Yet where yeah. the, the drama of it is so real in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the way that that plays, especially as someone who's read the whole book now. I'm like, it's like none of this matters in the big grander scheme, but in many ways it deeply matters. Well, it matters in terms of like setting up these characters and their motivations and like the, the things that drive them absolutely matters. But yeah, I, I see what you mean. Like these characters, like their feelings and the way that they think, um, don't matter but you know i i like that it's there to give motivation to the characters without it being like yeah everyone has a dad and my dad's dead something like yeah, that no it's it, and, and it's their their lives aren't perfect right like they have all this drama before everything goes down 
Yeah, I just mean that like the, in in terms of like everyone has a dad. That's the shorthand way to say like this is what this character's struggling with. But like we're getting like he was a great father in spite of his her her like tough to deal with mother and the way that they were they they he stood up to her and and defended Franny and and like tried to you know say the things that you would want a father to say and then dealing with losing her even though she kind of hated her and then and then dealing with the father losing the father too. It's just like. Great drama, yeah. like you said. Well, and uh, I think a uh, hallmark of King's fiction is abusive parents. Um, I know that that's something that he dealt with um, in different ways that he's talked about at times. Um, and I mean, I think in almost every book we've talked about, right, there's been some level of that going on somewhere, mm. right? Like it's, it's just a very constant thing. And then also characters struggling with not wanting to take after their abusive parents and become abusive themselves. And um, I, I thought this was like a little bit different with it being the mother because it's often the father um, here, um, but clearly, you know, an abusive relationship. And um, yeah. yeah, I don't know, just it, it's really engaging. It's it's very heavy, you know, and, and clearly, you know, triggering for many people. But King, like he goes there with his fiction. And I think that's one of the things people like about it is they want an author who's going to like cut to the bone and, and, get real with stuff and um mm -hmm. not not shy away from things other authors might i liked the agency given to to franny um with in terms of like her relationship with this guy right like she's like, harold she's harold or not harold um jesse oh jesse at the yeah. very beginning she she like is coming to the situation she's so in love but she's also thinking like oh there's a thought in the back of my mind that maybe i don't love him and then she sees him and she's like i do love him they're hanging out on the beach together and then she tells him that he's he she tells him that she's pregnant and then you know bad reaction he then she it all clicks and she's like i don't love him yeah. and then she you know breaks it off and, and the agency given to the character there i think is great yeah but then i feel like throughout the rest of her story so far for me her agency's been getting plucked away a little bit in terms of like the characters that she's around. I liked the, some of the beginning of the stuff with Harold, but he like has this weird like ownership thing with her that I didn't love. And I, I get what they're trying to do there. And then, and then specifically there's a jumping way ahead, but this, at the end of the section that we've read her, like Stu is like, Oh, I want her mm -hmm. like right away. And like, uh, it's just like some of that stuff yeah. that I didn't love where it's heading, but it, it, it I like her as a character. I like yeah. her personality. So you're saying you don't like the incel that she ends up having to spend time with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, yes. Harold's pretty awful. And I actually was kind of amazed at how well he fits that like insult stereotype back at a yeah. time in which that wasn't like a term but i'm like damn he might as well have just like plucked someone from the you know the internet forums and put him in this in this book you know like yeah. so full of like self-grandeur like he immediately feels like he owns her and he's owed things to, by her and he's owed because he's a nice guy that you know clearly he expects that she's going to become a sexual partner of his and I mean, the guy is awful. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Harold is right. just terrible. <laughs> and, like, you <laughs> feel kind of sorry for him. And I think Franny does because he does a good job of making him kind of um, pathetic and in a way that you would feel sorry for. But also, like, that fits that kind of person and that kind of character. Um, they're good at yeah. getting that reaction from people. And so, and Harold is franny's best friend's younger brother yeah and he's like the only person from their area to also have survived so she's like feels obligated to take care of him um and then to an extent and then um you know I, I talked about it a second ago but ultimately we these characters are separate all of these stories are separate and the the overlapping that we see is at the very end Stu 
runs into Franny and Nick because uh, Franny, Franny and, and Nick are on their way. Franny and Harold, sorry. Yeah. Franny and Harold are on their way to like Vermont, mm-hmm. I believe. And then they just so happen to run into. They're going to the CDC center he escaped from. Yes. So they, they intersect. And, and then uh, that's sort of the, the only, I think that's the only um, intersection we've seen so yes. far between our main characters. Well, unless you count Randall Flagg and Lloyd. <laughs> we've seen right. that. Yeah, um, Which we'll get to. Um, in fact, let's do that one now since we've, we've hinted at it, right? Well, and, and do you feel like we've said enough about Harold? Like we've, we've touched on him enough, you think? Harold? Yeah, sure. I mean, he's, he's awful. I yeah, mean, he sucks. we'll see more with him. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, I like that the, them meeting was cool. Um, we didn't talk a lot about Glenn Bateman, I guess, who um, I think is a really interesting character. This sort of like professor who's like one of my favorites talking yeah. about society and what's going to happen, making all these predictions. And he's just got this dog that he calls Kojak. And uh, yeah, I love him. He's <laughs> so great. They're like drinking beers yeah. and the end of the world. And I don't know. It's a very, it's very fun. It's philosophical too. Yeah. Like he's the, he's the like the um, intellectual who's like somehow survived through all this, and he's like sort of like looking at, at at it through the lens of like it's all over. He's a nihilist a little bit too. He's like it's all over, and yet like yeah. Oh, he has he has a great quote which I actually want to read. He says, "Show me a man or a woman alone, and I'll show you a saint. Give me two, and they'll fall in love. Give me three, and they'll invent the charming thing we call society." Give me four, and they'll build a pyramid. Give me five, and they'll make one an outcast. Give me six, and they'll reinvent prejudice. Give me seven, and in seven years, they'll reinvent warfare. Man may have made been made in the image of God, but human society was made in the image of his opposite number and is always trying to get back home. So this, I think, is a very important quote for this book. Yeah. Um, this yeah. is sort of prophetic, I think, in many ways, and... Um, it's a it's a good quote. It's a good piece of writing. Um, do you think it's accurate? Um, I mean, how pessimistic exactly? Is, if me personally, <laughs> yeah, me personally, no, not really. But but like, if I'm feeling pessimistic, maybe. Yeah, it is. Um, it kind of asks you, how pessimistic are you about people? Because right, it is essentially proposing that humans individually can be good. He even says a saint here. Um, but when you start putting us together, it brings out like the worst in us. Um, and you know, the, the larger the group, the worse it gets is essentially what he's saying here. Um, there's, there's an argument to be made for that being true. Um, I think there's definitely, uh, that is, that is like a force that pushes on us. And then I think there's other forces pushing the other way. And, um, yeah, that's something you have to combat, you know, I think, um, mm-hmm. but I, I think it's a fascinating quote and that comes from, from Glenn Bateman. So I wanted to, to shout it out. Yeah. I mean, just to talk about it a little bit here, you you know, that quote brings up this idea of good and evil, like I've talked about, uh, sort of shows up larger good and evil too, not just like people being good and evil internally and struggling with that, um, but also like forces of good and mm. evil. Um, and like the idea of like, you know, we're getting flashes of characters that are like clearly so like people in their dreams are seeing like like for instance Stu I think is the first one to see like a a cornfield and it's like good feeling good smells and it's making him feel good and then there's there's something else in his dream or his vision vision that's making like him red feel, eyes and the, the it, corn and yeah, stuff, yeah it's like it's like this a stench of death and like like um flies I think at one point either I think Nick sees flies but mm-hmm. there's like you know sort of plague elements that are that are being shown and so this idea of um uh man being made in god's image or whatever or what was the, what was the end of the quote there where it's like man ultimately like wants to basically it's saying like wants to get society back. is made in his opposite number 
in the image of of the devil is what he's saying and wants to get back to hell basically when it gets back home yeah yeah to hell so so like the idea of uh these forces that are being shown so far like um uh, maybe someone preying on the darker side of of humanity and like uh i I, i'm sensing henry bauer vibes already from uh lloyd the character that we meet (laughs) we'll we'll get to lloyd uh actually that reminds me of another thing we've we've sort of gotten past so i want to circle back for a second to stew um i loved his interactions when he was like in the actual facility and he was interacting with a scientist who would come in and like ask him questions that was the part that really sold me on stew as a character and made me like him was how he interacted with that guy and like making jokes he like jokingly coughs on him one time because he's feeling like this is bullshit and like you know Mm -hmm. you're taking this all too cavalierly and he knows he has a little bit of power but then he also like quickly recognizes when that's gone and he's like that wouldn't fly anymore that would get me shot um oh yeah he 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 like no there i mean there's that turning point and then he fights back he he, you know he's already contemplating escape like how do i get out of here realizes what's going on and that like they're gonna kill me and like he ends up being right and yeah and then his escape from the cdc is a was a cool was a harrowing sequence right with going through the bot seeing all the bodies and like i don't know and like people sick and dying last of us is another thing that i kept thinking of too last of us vibes yeah last of us sure i mean i'm telling you any any like big apocalyptic plague story you're gonna see the you know fingerprints of the stand on it i I think you just have to um Mm -hmm. okay let's talk about lloyd i think and then we can we can get to our other two main characters so Lloyd Henry starts off as a petty criminal who, along with Andrew, quote, Poke Freeman, engages in a killing spree across Nevada, Arizona, and New Mexico, resulting in six murders, Freeman's death, and Henry's detention in a Phoenix jail. If Henry undergoes his scheduled trial, it is likely that he will be placed on death row under a new statute that reduces delays and appeals to the capital punishment process. Once the plague hits, Henry's Henry's fellow prisoners become fatal victims of the superflu in addition to the guards. In the midst of the commotion, Henry is forgotten in his cell and eventually becomes the sole surviving inhabitant of the prison complex, which, by the way, terrifying. The idea of being in this prison oh, cell and everybody's absolutely. dead and you're starving and and another element that it plays off of is like the power being out and stuff yeah. and the idea that you can't open some of these cells without the power being on and it has to like you can't just open it with a key because they're like magnetically locked or something. So yeah, Lloyd, uh, this character, the, the the introduction as well, um, makes I, I was compelled by just this like almost like courtroom drama that we were leading to, <laughs> yeah. like the corrupt like his lawyer slick talking, yeah, the corrupt system, and like I was like, all right, let's get into this, let's go to the courtroom, let's see how the judges feel about this, and see how you know broken the American system is if this murderer can get off and all this other stuff. Or be put to death like nine days later, which also seemed wild, right? Like, like that's also incredibly unjust and, and seems exactly. cruel and unusual, you know? So, I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then we, but like, like I said, Henry Bowers from It, like that character mm. is like not redeemable, but funny, funny enough going into this section because uh, Stephen King had sort of bait and switched us a couple times. I thought this was going to be like a one-off chapter where this where this character was like on on like a killing spree or whatever, and then we're not going to you know something's going to happen that's plague related, and then we're not going to hear from them again. Yeah. But then the, when I was surprised when the chapters kept showing up with the, then with his lawyer, then in the jail, I was like, oh okay, so like this is an important character. Well, King does this kind of dude so well, and um, there's a lot of these people in America. 
and um, I think he identified it early and um, is, has hold, held very true. But he creates a character in in Lloyd and in the Poke and in Henry Bowers, who are these like vicious, awful people, um, who are evil, but they're not evil in the same way that Randall Flagg is evil, right? They're evil right. in like a very human way. Um, they're like they're just like hateful and not aware. They're not like self-aware enough to realize the harm they're, they're causing. And they also just like, don't care. I don't know. It's like, yeah. he creates these characters so well and they feel so true to life. Like these are people that you can meet and like, or read about that do some heinous shit who, when you read about them, you're like, they don't seem like a monster. They just seem like they were like, like foolish and didn't grasp the like gravity of what they were doing at the time. And like, you know, or it's like a certain like self-serving, like self-preservation thing. Clearly a lot of them have dealt with trauma and stuff, but like maybe they're products of their environment. is like an open question. Sure. Um, anyway, um, I, I think Lloyd is, is, is a good example of that. And, um, you know, Poke is another example of that, right? They're just, like, murdering people, but it's clear that, like, none of them really understands the gravity of what they're doing. Um, I think they're just doing it to rob stores. Yeah, right? they're just... and then he just, like, thinks it's funny to say pokerize people, I think, and that's why he's shooting them. Like, I don't know. Like, it, it just seems, like, so frivolous. But, like, that that sort of banality of evil, right, like, is something that is, like, uh, a, a present in a lot of King's work. As a, It's an interesting, like... Um, juxtaposition between that and then the like more elemental e- archetypal evil that you often get too, mm-hmm. right? Like it, both forces come together and they tend to use each other. Right. Um, which, it, right. which is always interesting the way that they play off of each other and true to form here. Let me continue reading this little uh, summary of what happens with Lloyd. Henry is able to save himself from starvation by eating food that he has saved along with whatever rats, roaches or other vermin he can catch. He also very nearly consumes the leg of a dead cellmate. In the revised expanded version, Flag insinuates that Henry did indeed eat some human flesh, despite Henry's attempts to hide the cuts in the leg before the dark man arrived. Henry is found by Flag, who frees him from his cell after Henry, at that point starving and nearly delirious, agrees to be Flag's right-hand man, despite Henry's suspicion that his liberator is actually a devil. At this time, Flag also gives Henry a black stone with a red flaw to symbolize Henry's allegiance to Flag. Okay, so a couple of things here. First off, I don't know why it says Henry instead of Lloyd. I always just think of him as Lloyd. Um, Lloyd, I know yeah. it's his last name. But anyway, um, this also gives us the opportunity to talk about Randall Flag. I thought it was interesting that he gave him something that clearly has ability. So he's like giving an ability to this awful, crazy person. Mm-hmm. Um and so like i'm immediately like okay so he just made making him his right hand man he's like literally a supernatural he has supernatural powers now too like he can create well in his, in his opening chapter he levitates at the end of it so <laughs> it's pretty clear <laughs> but well i just mean like he just bestowed that power to somebody who didn't have it before and he also like like randall can also do so we have we're dealing with two supernatural yeah. people potentially just based on the fact that he has an item well and he says that his magic is like growing as this is all going yeah. down, right? As as the plague is sweeping through the country, Randall's like, my power, like he can do magic now and stuff he's talking about. Right. Well, and and like the, we, he kind of out and out tells us all about this character right away. The first time we meet him, he's like walking down the road. Yeah, he's the walking he's, dude. But he's not, he's, 
He's the walking. He's the the dark man. Mm-hmm. The the walking the walking dude. Yeah, the tall man. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's telling us like King is out and out telling us like, uh, he's like growing stronger. He's been there for these atrocities that have happened in in America and in, in around the world. Like he's always in the background, like making things worse. Yep. Like not ever being the one who's yep. like given the speech, but he'll write the speech for someone to read. You know, he's had a lot right. of riots that turned violent. Reminiscent of 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 a of a Pennywise type character that's like preying on yeah. you know the 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 evils it's that of elemental the, of that town. archetypal like demonic stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Right. So really cool to see like this character introduced, and and it's different enough to where it doesn't feel like Pennywise again. Yeah. Um, it's different in the way, that, and it's also like clearly Plague is associated with him. He felt like one of the Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Like he mm. felt like Plague. He felt Interesting. like um, yeah, yeah that that. that idea to me and, and like with all the biblical things that have been talked about up to this so, point already like it f- felt like something's being said what there. did you think of lloyd and him meeting up like like did you expect that did, what did you think of when he when he showed up at the jail did you think he was going to let him free i i so i didn't i didn't predict that he was that he, uh flag was going to be the one to show up i thought maybe like a guard came back or something like that and it wasn't until like you know it started to become a little more ominous. He started to become like scared without even like Lloyd was getting scared without even realizing. And I was like, Oh shit, it's, it's random. When he heard someone walking in. It's the dark man. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than it being like a guard or somebody who'd come back. And then I'm like, Oh shit. So he's going to let him out. He's going to use him. He's going to use him in in certain ways. Like I kind of picked up on that pretty quickly, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's still, he's a terror. He's a scary guy. They keep talking about him like the devil. Like he's basically the, just the devil. Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of all this biblical stuff they're talking about. But then also we can, if you know the macro verse of Stephen King a little bit, I think you can zoom out and think like, this is one of these crazy entities potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, wild stuff. Like, I, I mean, and Randall Flagg is interesting because he's like sort of just a dude. Like yeah. you said, like he's, like he's like not this creature. He's wearing denim, denim jacket. He's got like, a, he's got like buttons on his jacket and stuff, right? Yeah. He's got like long hair and like, he's not a creature. He's just a guy. Yeah. Um, so that's it. That's definitely a difference there as well. Right. Um, but he's got a presence to him and, and he's basically shown up for all of our characters, whether like in person or not, his, his, they've at least come in contact with, with like his, in a dream or like I said, Nick, a character, probably my favorite character that we'll meet in a second, uh, like saw like, uh, he kept people keep seeing like black things in the in the the side of their view and they turn and look and nothing's there but then ominous feelings are around and stuff so he's pretty pretty you know powerful i would say yeah okay well you mentioned his name so let's get right into nick andros uh so nick andros is a 22 year old deaf mute drifter originally from castlin nebraska andros is beaten and robbed outside of fictional shoyo arkansas by some local thugs Shortly after the start of the epidemic, mildly injured in the assault and initially jailed, Andros is befriended by the local sheriff and his wife. Andros expresses intent to press charges against his attackers, and the sheriff jails three of the four that can be found before falling ill with the superflu. Andros becomes the newest deputy due to the absence of any other healthy people and watches two of the four thugs who are responsible for assaulting him die of the plague in the local jail. at the local jail. The sheriff dies as well. Andros later frees the third prisoner and tends to the sheriff's wife before she also dies. In the original version of the novel, Andros falls from a bicycle and hits his head in the abandoned shoyo, but scratches his leg on the, in the fall, becoming infected, and it leaves him sick for days. In the revised expanded edition, which is the one we read, 
A sickened and fugitive Ray Booth, the fourth attacker of Andros, attacks him a second time in the empty Shoyo. In the course of the attack, Booth nearly blinds one of Andros's eyes, and in a panic, Andros accidentally fires the gun holstered on his belt, and the bullet scrapes his leg, causing the limb to become infected. Andros eventually recovers from his leg infection and begins his journey to Nebraska, which is, I think, the last we saw of him. Um, so, yeah, you, you you mentioned earlier that you like this character. Tell me more about that. Yeah, uh, the most compelling character to read, in my opinion, um, because you have a character that's gone through a lot in their life, right? Like, you have a character who we, we get the backstory. And, like, the way that the information is doled out to us, I find to be interesting as well. And the way that King set up this scene, he's being attacked basically right away. Yep. And we're picking up on the fact that he has these impairments, like he's he's mute and he's deaf. And we're picking up on that as the fight is happening, as he's like being attacked um, based on like the way that he's interacting with the fight and stuff. It's very interesting. Um, and and like, I think having a character like this, for one, I mean, like like there's not there hasn't been a lot of stories about characters like this. And I think it's it's compelling to hear the ways that someone can adapt with these with the with these um you know situations that they're that has been basically dealt to them yeah. yeah their disabilities like the and like um the clever ways that the character interacts with people um the lip reading mm -hmm. used in order for us to know that that and the way that like if nick turns away from someone uh he can kind of just f have everything fade out like he, someone will be saying something to him and then it'll fade off the page because nick has looked away and like basically the person he can't hear the person yeah. anymore and, and that, that, that kind of stuff i find to be really interesting we do get a little bit of um, like stephen king magic because he's he, he's in that sort of like semi-omniscient point of view where he can occasionally fill in the blanks he'll say like oh nick right. didn't hear this part but he'll like give it to you so it's an interesting t where he plays with point of view a little bit sometimes to, to get away with some stuff here. i would love to know i would love to know how um people with similar disabilities feel about the portrayal of this character so i mean i think there is a lot of discourse about that um i haven't read a ton of it um i do know that it is a topic uh that has been written about a lot i know that there is some drama about the casting of nick in the show that they did not cast a person who is uh, a deaf mute um and mm -hmm. instead they cast someone who can hear and, and and speak and and is instead playing that they are are and i know that that was a big controversy because we're in a time of own voices which i think is you know a, a great thing and i think people want representation to fit the character and that's in, in a, an important yeah. way in that way and um you can also look at this character and say like, well, Stephen King isn't this th these things and he wrote this character. So are there things he gets wrong? Absolutely. I am I necessarily the person to point them out? No, because I, you know, I, there are times where I'm like, yeah, that's probably not accurate or this might not be, you know, but I'm not really the person to identify those things. Uh, I'm sure there are, they are there. And I'm sure there are some microaggressions written into the book here that might rub you the wrong way. Um, if you're deaf or, or something, you know, reading this. Um, right. That we're not even picking up on, too. So we're like, yeah, yeah. So that's grain of salt with all that stuff. I, I really like the character. Yeah. I think the personality of the character is fun. Well, and I, and I think I got to give King props for going there, right? And like, having a character who's a little different. Like we talked about how there's a lot of white dudes. At least this white dude's, you know, a little different in that sense. You know, uh, you, have a, you have a, you know, disabled character um, who's, who's a central character. And you know what? I, I've been holding off saying it, but like, I completely agree with you. I love Nick. <laughs> Nick is, is... Yeah maybe my favorite character probably my favorite character um in the entire book 
Um, and I was really happy to come back and, and re- revisit him because um, he's great. I don't know. He's just such a good guy and you feel so bad for him, but like he's so capable. I don't yeah. know. Like he's so smart. And, and um, I, I, in particular, I thought a brilliant bit of character development is done. Is the letter? Um, no, and I was thinking that that's a good bit too. But what the part I'm going to talk about is where he is in a jail with three of the people who beat him viciously beat him when we first met him, mm-hmm. and he is now in a position of authority over these guys. He has them trapped, and he could just leave them because it is an immense amount of danger he puts himself in. By letting them free, um, and yet he releases one of them. Um, now this guy's already sick, so he probably dies. Is the expectation right? Like he's he's not going to last long. Right. But the fact that he does that is such an I think like a, a important bit of his character. That even this guy who viciously beat him, he recognizes in this moment that that's the right thing to do is to let this guy go and not just make him die in the cell um, because you know he identifies what's going on. And I don't know. I just think that that's like that's such a cool moment for Nick, where it really tells you something about him, like his ability to Absolutely, forgive yeah. this in that moment. I guess, or even if he doesn't forgive it, he can look past it. I guess. Yeah, with with a larger context of everything that's going yeah. on, it's like what. And it even mean? though we know that he wants to press charges and he wants them to to face justice, but this isn't what he wanted. He didn't want them to die. Yeah, it's different. He's at it, and and like we we like I love the way I talked about how we're doled out information. I love the way that like his backstory is given to us through like uh, this police officer asks for his um, asks for his backstory and is like basically deputizing yeah. him and, and allowing him to become like a police officer um, f- for the area because he's running out of people and st- you know stuff's going on. People are sick and uh, and then he basically is like the only cop left in the yeah. area. You know, and and uh, the way that he like, writes the letter, though, to to uh, this police officer and his and his wife and how like they become uh, like a part of his life, like immediately they, they're like people who nobody's really been there for his whole life for him. Yeah, they almost become like parental figures for him. Right. And then they're exactly. immediately taken away. <laughs> and then they're immediately taken away. It was really, really uh, sad, sad portion. And uh, I, I don't know. I just I, I'm really excited to see more of what, what Nick does. Yeah. We when we last left him, he was uh he was like riding a bicycle. Yeah. By the way, what's up with people riding bicycles across the country in this story? Because that's multiple people have just jumped on. Well, bicycles. I think some of them are on motorcycles. Some of them are, but some of them are yeah. also just like riding. I just bicycles. think it's easier to get around. Like all the, there's like all these cars yeah. stuck in the road and stuff, so that's they're true, able to yeah. weave. I think it makes some yeah. sense to me. And plus, a bike doesn't t- require any gas. But that's a lot of miles. That's like hundreds a lot of, miles of miles in some cases. <laughs> yeah. And people um, do it, I guess, though. Yeah, people do it. Uh, okay, so, and plus, he's a, he was a drifter, right? So he's probably done this sort of thing a lot. Yeah. Um, let's get to the final main character, Mr. Larry Underwood. So Underwood is a young, narcissistic singer-songwriter who, at the beginning of the novel, is starting to achieve significant success with his debut single, Baby, Can You Dig Your Man? He tallies a debt with a drug dealer while living in Los Angeles and travels to New York to hi- New York City to hide on the pretext of visiting his loving but deeply disapproving mother. When pressed, his mother points out his greatest character flaw to him directly. You're a taker. You come you come home to me because you knew that I have to give. As the plague and anarchy destroyed New York, Underwood attempts to care for his dying mother, but he is unable to prevent her death from the superflu. Not long after, Underwood finds that he is one of the few living people remaining in New York City. He meets a troubled, middle-aged woman named Rita Blakemore, and the two decide to leave New York together. 
They experience a frightening trek through the Lincoln Tunnel while leaving the island, an incident that Underwood is often haunted by uh, for the remainder of the narrative. Blakemore eventually dies from a drug overdose that Underwood described as, quote, 70% accuracy accident and 30% suicide. I don't know if he said that yet. <laughs> he feels guilty over his relief that he does not have to deal with Rita anymore, a confirmation of his mother's assessment of him. And this is basically where we leave him. He 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 encounters some people approaching him on motorcycle. I think is the last thing we got. Um, or it seems like. So, what is your take on Larry Underwood? You talked about characters that uh that are not likable yeah. <laughs> and uh larry's not very likable you know we get to learn like some of his backstory with stuff that's gone on with his baggage he has with his mother um but he was and, and like he's a struggling artist when we first meet him uh but it's like at the he's, he's kind of like he's that he's had that success though it's at that that we get this like a, maybe a short section about him being a struggling uh artist and then he's like success and it's like the sort of sellout success that people people would say he's got one big song and like he's blowing all his money. He's the king of the world, um, uh, you know, blowing it on drugs and, and partying and all this other stuff. Uh, and and then but like the, more than anything, it's the things that I don't like about him are the tendencies, like the way he like talks to people, the way he treats people, the way he thinks about people. Mm. Um, we see it a lot. He's very selfish, very self-centered. Um but I do have a theory that this is the type of character that King would like to take and make you um, like he would like to redeem this character and make mm. this character like have a sacrifice or have like something some big moment to redeem him in a way that like you you didn't see coming. It's just well, a and, that's, guess that and, I have. And, and that's smart writing, right? To redeem have a redemption yeah. arc for somebody and, and um, you may, I don't know you may be accurate. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna yeah. give anything away, but um, Larry is very tough to read. <laughs> um, yeah. He, I think he's even more dislikable now, like 10 years later reading this from when I first read him. As I remember, I didn't like him then either, but like, man, he's really tough nowadays <laughs> to read. Like yeah. he's racist. He's sexist, deeply sexist, incredibly mm -hmm. selfish, um, just kind of reprehensible in many, many ways. And yeah, the way he thinks about people, it tends to be cruel um, he tends to be incredibly judgmental um, and not even realize it. Like he makes, he makes excuses for it to himself um, mm -hmm. in a way that is very real. Like you can, you can, you can see the way he's thinking and like understand it and like why he doesn't break out of those thought patterns. Um, it feels incredibly well drawn to me. And my theory reading this and knowing what I know about Stephen King now is that I think this is the self-insert character of the book. This is the most yeah. like Stephen King of any of the characters. Now, I think it is a version of himself that he didn't like. I think because we know um, he dealt a lot with drug abuse uh, early on. He had immense success right out of the gate, maybe like a one-hit wonder, and he was worried about that. Mm -hmm. um, I think he was worried about his viability as an, as a, like a you know, quote unquote real artist, much like Larry is, is, you know, is he a real musician? Um, I mean, I, I just, I sense a lot of anxiety about King's success here. And I think that's represented in Larry Underwood. And it's interesting that he's one of the most despicable characters because I think he's kind of closest to King in many ways. Um, I, I think it's specifically stuff about himself that he didn't like. I think he put into Larry. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about it in The Shining, like the clearly there's an insert character that's a writer in, yeah, in The Shining or attempting attempting mm -hmm. to be a writer. Um, and 
that's a reprehensible character that deals with like child abuse at some points sure. and that some of that other kind of stuff that might have been you know i think we kind of touched on potentially were, were things that king was struggling with like how yeah. he how he treated he was his scared kids of and... himself and the things that he might do right yeah, yeah and, and you know I, I think it's notable that you know larry is an artist right like it's right. i think musician and writer you know filmmaker that a lot of these artistic professions um, are going to have a lot of overlap there and also the way that people deal with them in society, the idea of stardom, um, which is mm-hmm. something that he was probably starting to deal with back then even. Um, yeah. You know, on a different level, obviously, a writer is always going to be very different than like a musician. <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. I, I think he, he is particularly suited to writing a character like this because of that, you know, experience he has with success. Um, and yeah, that's, that's my theory about him. Um, what do you think of Rita, who he kind of ends up traveling with? Rita's not super likable, but like, uh, you feel, you feel bad in ways and especially for the way that he treats her, um, yeah. and thinks about her and stuff and, as and well. And you can and tell like that clearly she is she's... picking up on it, right? Like she knows what's yeah. happening. Absolutely. Yeah. And she's like older than he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's looking for protection at this point. And clearly like she's had it rough with men in her life up to that point. Like her father, her ex-husband or husband, I think she mentions, yeah. um, like clearly she, she, you know she's been struggling with with her relationship with men uh through her whole life and, and then like finds this character um latches on to him at the end of the world here and then like you know the stuff that she's dealing with in the way i mean he's just awful to her he's just an awful person and yeah. then and then she yeah and like then he wants she to have sex just, like, he has sex with her and then as soon as he's starting to get tired of it now all of a sudden he starts seeing all these flaws and he starts like pointing them out to her and like driving a wedge yeah, he he did, he is like aware in a way that he's terrible though. I think that's important. That's like an important bit for Larry. Well, that's the difference that between him and like Lloyd, right? He's exactly, not the evil that's like murderer. That, yeah, yeah, that's Lloyd a good is. point. That is that is the difference between him and someone like Lloyd. And you know, he didn't kill anybody yet like that. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, that is important. And then you get the Lincoln Tunnel sequence, which is one of the things that like I remember ten years after reading the book. That was still a section I remembered. Mm-hmm as just a, a, a iconic sequence. Um, and I was happy to hear you, you shout it out earlier. Yeah. Tell me, tell yeah. me about it. what did you think of that? I mean, it was crazy. Uh, you know, so Lloyd is, go- or, uh, Larry is going into this tunnel. He is like left Rita behind at this point. Like she yep. forget how it specifically goes down, but he bails on her. Yeah. They have a, they have a fight over her not wearing her shoes or something or her shoes. Are, yeah. Yeah. Their feet. And he doesn't chase her down. He lets her go. And then they're separated and he's like, debating leaving without her and then at the last second he's like fuck it i'm going through this tunnel i'm gonna get out of here then he goes in and he's got like his bic lighter in his pocket so he's got a little source of light um and he's got a gun and he's like traveling through and as he goes through he's he's like seeing dead soldiers on the ground and he keeps having visions of like it's pitch black in there basically and he kept having visions of like soldiers grabbing his ankles while he's trying to walk by and and uh, all this other stuff. And then it gets to the point where there's like stacks of bodies that he has to like crawl over, which have been people that were trying to escape. I assume that were executed by the soldiers. Um, uh, yeah. I assume he, he keeps like stumbling on these like little scenes that are just horrifying. Yeah. Right. And then he's also imagining like he's imagining like like one, you know, soldier out there in the darkness with infrared goggles watching him and like the paranoia and the fear he starts going overwhelmed with. And he's in there for a mile and he's like surrounded by dead bodies. And, and he's like trying to convince himself that he shouldn't be afraid of it. But like the way that his mind plays tricks on him 
And then, yeah, he almost shoots Rita when she essentially has been following him. He climbs over like stacks of bodies, just bodies stacked on top of each other. Like, like, like he said, like eight high or something. He's crawling over them and having to crawl over dead bodies. That's horrific on its own. And then he has to crawl back over because he hears a noise from behind. But before he starts crawling back, he just like starts opening fire with his gun because he's become so terrified. And in this moment, we do get little flashes of like he sees something black and da da da. So of course, there's like that added element of like maybe you know yeah. Randall Flag is fucking with him a little <laughs> bit here, uh, in the darkness. And then uh, he like just starts opening fire, shoots all of his bullets, and um, sh- sh- he finds out that this noise that he was hearing that he was shooting at was Rita, and he almost killed her. He almost shot her, and then. Uh, it's it's just a terrifying sequence more than anything it's the suspense so like we yeah. didn't do it justice in terms of like yeah. the actual like feeling that you would have gotten but it's it's an intense it's uh, good sequence stuff for sure um yeah. and, and then they and then they leave and they they travel together for for a time um they're camping along the way and he's thinking of lord of the rings and the journey and yep. all this stuff and then uh, well rita then, rita's the one who brings it up rita rita mentioned like oh, yeah, this you're is right. like a lord this of the rings like adventure rings. tolkien yeah, yeah. Um, and then, um, they're, she's, she, she's having trouble. You can tell that she's really struggling. And then, um, yeah, she ends up overdosing on, I think sleeping pills. It seems to be maybe something else. Um, she, she was t- taking other pills, which had been sort of like, uh, foreshadowed, right? When we knew that she had these pills that she takes. Um, but did, what, how did that strike you? Was it a surprise? Oh, definitely a surprise. Yeah. I, I thought she was going to be a liability for him, you know, for a long time. I thought that he was because she she like had the bloody feet and she had all this stuff and he went he left her, but then he went back for her and, and like there was like this relationship that was building, but it was also toxic. And then, um, yeah, for her to just like kill herself was definitely surprising. I was yeah. very accidentally, uh, we should say. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, we think it seems like it. Well, but, he says yeah. 70, 30. So, yeah <laughs> apparently um yeah i mean it's it's a uh tragic series of events and uh yeah i mean he's like he, he's like the, when he's happening he's like at one of his most dislikable moments too where he's just like singing the star spangled banner and he's got a boner and he's like i'm gonna go use this boner on her and he's like going to wake her up to have sex with her when he finds her dead and like all this, i don't know that's like larry to a t though like he's like He's kind of well. Then he's not, the and then and then to mention the fact that like he's not um, big enough to to bury her. Like he he like yeah. won't deal with it. Like he he's hands. He's like I I can't be bothered. Like he's like I, I'm not dealing with that. I'm not gonna go drag her out of the tent. Yeah, and, like, she's bury just, her she's so gross right now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and we've seen someone like Franny like carry her own father downstairs. You know. Yeah. And, yeah. I know it's her father, but still, like she's she shows a lot more strength. I, I would argue than than Larry here. Um, and that's all our main players, right? So, um, what is, what are your thoughts now that we've kind of sort of talked about the whole, the totality of all of our main players, um, on this first book, what are you, and, and then, and then beyond that, what are you, what are you looking forward to next? What do you think is going to happen next? Yeah. I mean, I kind of have said the things that I think are going to happen next are, I think a lot of these characters are going to run into each other. Now, everybody's traveling to locations, at this point in the novel, like all, like all of our main characters are on the move. So I don't know if there's one destination they end up in or multiple and they get in communication with each other. I don't know exactly how it's all going to go down. I clearly can see that like there's a force that is going to have to be reckoned with. There's going to be people have to band together to defeat these like otherworldly forces at some point. But I think that's like far away in the story. I think um, 
most i don't know kind of like this this is starting to feel like a lot of the walk like post-apocalyptic portion of it the apocalypse has happened Mm -hmm. and it's like what what are they going to do from here um i don't know if it's going to be like a week passes for the rest of the novel and they're just continuing to deal with like the plague spreading into other areas but it seems like up to this point most people are dead um and i don't know if it's going to be like what um glenn was talking about where like people are banding together and fighting which again brings up sort of like walking dead vibes for me Mm. um like small factions like like trying to and and um they talk about like there's this whole sequence with harold and and um franny where he's like you know there's men that are gonna try to rape you out there and stuff and like 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 setting up this idea that like everybody they run into is is a threat and that's very like you can't trust anyone and they meet Stu and like right away they think Stu's gonna rape her or he thinks that and like yeah is is maybe is maybe Harold projecting a little bit here his own desires obviously yeah yeah, for sure uh so I I I don't know my theories are basically like the the I think we're gonna get like the post-apocalyptic version of this story now and how they're gonna try to pick up the pieces and fight this this I don't know I, I have no idea how it's going to become Randall Flagg versus these main characters okay. what, what, what about the here. dreams yeah I mean the dreams are I, I don't know they seem more abstract like they I don't think they're gonna become like a concrete thing but then again in something like it that's not the case you know you're getting like there's like a physical place and physical things that have to happen to beat this this entity and stuff Mm -hmm. so maybe something like that i assume you know and you think of even like the shining with this like like morphing face creature thing that that shows itself at the end as the hotel as Mm -hmm. the the boiler you know creeped to the point that it was it was blowing up up, and everything comes down around something like that i assume they'll best this creature but i don't know i'm very excited for where it's going because everyone's always talked about how this is like one of the best king novels and so far it really has lived up to that um but i want to know like what you know what edges everything else out i'm ready to see that (laughs) yeah and we'll see if it it holds up you know that's still the case for us um right yeah i'm excited to get into that too Um, another thing that i do want to shout out is the the side stuff a lot of the side stuff we didn't touch a ton on but like a lot of this a a lot of that was some of my favorite parts what about what about trash can man that i have no fucking idea what the fuck is going on with trash can man like is he like i assume that trash can man is in some way going to be manipulated also by randall flag like he's going to get a crew together because he's like a he's like a pyromaniac and stuff and and uh i like assume something like that's gonna happen but that whole sequence that whole chapter was wild he's like blowing up like tankers and stuff and broke this didn't he like break his arm and stuff like yeah he gets hurt and he's like reveling in it right like he's almost having like a sexual ecstasy about like the destruction he's causing and everything yeah yeah he's a he's a character all right yeah, there's a lot of these yeah. little side, little side one-offs and stuff, and then some of the them news maybe, one maybe particularly stood out to me. Oh the yeah, news the news station who like pushed back the... against the military was trying to like um, silence them, and the news station pushed yeah. back, and they like I like got that the, message like, out the there. free press like coming in and being like we're gonna tell the truth, and then they've been shut down, and like yeah, yeah. I mean a lot of that, a lot of that stuff is super interesting. We we can't really go over all of it, but yeah, it's good stuff. Um, we did want to say, though, if you enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review. It helps the podcast out immensely. And, uh, yeah, whatever podcast uh, player you use, make sure to do that. And if you're on YouTube or whatever, subscribe, throw us a like, that kind of thing. Yeah, and make sure to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at ink to film And join the Council of Inklings on Facebook. And we wanted to thank Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. 
Okay, now here we are at the end. I did want to go into Patreon stuff just a little bit more for those who are interested. Um, we are, we've added a bunch of tiers, um, and we have a mug, a t-shirt, and a hoodie available at different tiers for, um, you, you sign up for the tier for three months and then you'll get whatever item it is that has that new art on it, um, which is really cool. I really, really like it. Yeah. It's like a more realistic looking octopus and like, I don't know, it's very, it's very cool. Um, and we also have another tier. It's a $5 tier, which is new. Um, which gives you the option to write in um, a, a little take. You know, it could be a question. It could be something for us to discuss. It could just be a take about a project that we're working on. You write it in, and then, you you know, we'll be choosing from them to read during some of these episodes and discuss. Um, so it's a really good way to, like, get yourself into an episode and, and some of your some of your thoughts. Um, so if you're interested in that, check that tier out. It's all self-explanatory. Read through the tiers. Um, you know, we invite you to check it out. And then, yeah, if you're just curious at all, the $2 tier is going to get you voting power. It's going to get you in the Discord, which is something we would love for people to join. If you're a patron, make sure to join the Discord. We want to d- sort of develop sort of that private community for our, our listeners. Um, and then uh, you'll also get the voting power, if I didn't say that already, on future projects, um, which is, is something that we're really excited about. And we'll be putting one up. We're going to try and do them quarterly for like a, a project right. uh, chosen by poll. Yeah, and uh, the Discord is available to all tiers. And yep. if you are anything above the five dollar tier, you're going to get the uh, the ability to write in as well. So yeah, uh, definitely yeah, check yeah. those out. Yeah, and then um, we also have the old merch that is still available. So that's all. That should all be clear on there. Um, we did have an option. Um, uh, we were we basically had to choose between either having it so that you could pick and choose what kind of merch you wanted, or you would sign up for like a loyalty program where you would get merch rolled out to you over time. Um, we thought that people would want the ability to just be like, "I want the mug," or "I want the T-shirt," but because of that, you might have to like move um, tiers if you want to get both, you know what I mean? Like you, you'd, you have to sign up for like the mug tier for, for three months, get the mug. And then you might have to change the t-shirt tier if you want to get that t-shirt. So it just depends on what you want out of it. You might have to move around a little bit, but we thought we, we preferred that than the rather of like, you have to sign up at this tier and stay there for a year to like get everything, which is the other way that this is all done through Patreon. So we, our hands were sort of tied in weird ways. So uh, you know, hopefully yeah. give us the benefit. Of the I will here. say, <laughs> and I will say too, like that Patreon tier, if we did it where you get all of the merch, uh, every three months, you would get a piece of merch. If we did that, the tier price would be really high. So we really felt like high, a, yeah. a better option would be to allow people to kind of slot in where they feel like they would want to support and also what items they'd like to go after. If, if that's the case. And we, we also like are super, super thankful to everybody who wants to help support the podcast because if at any tier really more than anything you're helping support the podcast and we want to try to give back as much as we can absolutely and we're just you know we're trying to provide more value for you there if it's something that you're curious about but we also love people who don't even give us money you know we just just listening to the podcast is uh, you know the first and foremost the biggest thing and, and if you do that and you're listening to us now thank you for doing it uh thank you for joining us for season five the kickoff coverage with the stand we will be doing five episodes on this book and series so um hopefully you stephen king fans are enjoying it uh and until next time thanks for listening